0: We'll show you how to pay for it when you get there, okay? Okay, let's take our Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. <clears throat> Colossians chapter 3. Now, Colossians only has four chapters, so we'll, we're moving along pretty well. Last week, the, impo- the Apostle Paul gave instructions to the church at, in the city of Colossae, which is located where all those seven churches of Asia Minor are located. Church at Laodicea, Thyatira, Pergamos, all those churches. They weren't, they're not the only churches in that area. There are other, other churches, and one of those other churches in that same region is Colossae. And uh, last week we saw that he gave them instructions to put off certain things. He uses the language of clothing, putting on clothing and putting off clothing, Uh, But he's applying it to our behavior, and he says, you should put off malice. You should put off anger. You should put off obscene language. It doesn't do you well to wear those things or behave that way. And so that's a negative instruction. And uh, just as uh, people take off clothes and put on different clothes for the occasion, for the circumstances, you wouldn't go to a. If you were invited to a, a wedding that was being held at the mansion, you probably wouldn't wear your overalls. You know, they just bailed hay that day. You would take that off and you'd put on some decent clothes. So you'd take off your clothes that weren't appropriate for this c- occasion, and you'd put on clothes that are appropriate for the occasion. you're like me, you've probably watched Downton Abbey. They're always changing their clothes, taking clothes off, putting clothes on. The clothes that are appropriate for breakfast are not appropriate for supper, and that's just the bottom line. And guess what? There are certain things that are not appropriate for a Christian, and you need to take those things off. Those are the negative instructions, and now we discover that there are positive instructions. There are behaviors we should put on or we should embrace. So that's what this section is about. Now, I'm going to outline our section this way. There are four commands that we're going to look at. The first command is found in verse 12. Notice it says, put on. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on. Do you see that? That's command number one. Command number two is found in verse 14. Above all these things, put on. Do you see that? Put on love. That's the second command. The third command is found in verse 15. Let peace rule. And then in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell. So there are four commands. The first two, we're commanded to put on something. The next two, we are commanded to let something happen in our lives. Okay, And then... Finally, the last verse, verse 17, Paul summarizes his teaching. So let's look at command number one. And I want you to notice who he's addressing in this command. Therefore, as the elect of God, he's talking to believers, those that are elect, that are part chosen in Christ to be followers of the Messiah. And look how he describes the elect. Holy. In other words, righteous, a person who lives right. And beloved, we are the object of God's love. God so loved us that he gave his son. So these words like elect, holy, and beloved are words that are associated with the Old Testament. Old Testament believers were called elect, holy, and beloved. These are words that are associated with God's covenant with Israel. Remember God made a covenant with Israel. He elected Israel to be his people, his beloved. They were to live a holy life, a life that was different than the rest of the nation. Covenant language. Now Paul writes, and guess what? He includes Gentiles. This is the new covenant. And under the new covenant, there are elect people. And that's the church. And he describes us as holy and beloved. Now look what we are to do. Here's the command. Number one, put on tender mercies, tender mercies. That means heartfelt compassion uh, toward people who need compassion, people who need mercy, people who are down and out and they need a helping hand. We are to be compassionate toward them. Paul will say later on in other books that uh, widows and orphans and people who Uh, need help we need to show mercy toward those people or a better translation heartfelt compassion that's the first thing you're to put on are you a compassionate person i remember when i was a young christian i was a hard-hearted person i just felt if you didn't make it tough you know what the scripture says don't do it see that's how i was but over the years god's had to break my heart and show me that we are we're our brother's keeper, aren't we? He can't say, well, that's my brother, so what? You know, let him do what? No, you're your brother's keeper. You should be tender toward people who need mercy. And then the second thing we're to put on, kindness. Uh, we're not to be abrasive. We're not to be uh, blunt. We're to have mellow dispositions. Kindness. Now, the third thing we're to put on, humility. That's um, uh, modesty, being modest about your accomplishments, not self-conscious. We shouldn't be self-conscious, uh, hoping that people are going to see what we're doing, you know, uh, wanting to uh, uh, get attention, and so the people pat us on the back. Modesty, not braggadocious. You know Christians who are braggadocious all the time? guess what they need to do? They need to put on humility. And then next, meekness. Some translations say gentleness. That is, uh, meekness is being restrained. Restrained. Uh, not loud, you know, gentle. What does a gentle person look like? It's not a person like that rushes in like a bull in a china closet, is it? That's the opposite of meekness. So, yes, you could do that. It's not a person who says, well, just give it to me. I'm going to take the bull by the horns." Oh, you are, aren't you? Yeah, that's real meek. See? So we're talking about, yes, you could do that, but restrain yourself. Okay? That's meekness. Okay? And then finally, long-suffering, which is patience, which is waiting for God to work things out, not jumping ahead uh, and getting ahead of God. But patient, and when you're going through difficult times, waiting and trusting God to work things out. That's long-suffering. Now, what does this look like? What does this involve? Well, that's verse 13. Here's what it looks like. Here's what it means to be merciful and kind and humble and meek and long-suffering. Here it is, verse 13, bearing with one another. Or the Allen Street translation, putting up with each other. <laughs> you know, uh, this is different than bearing each other's burdens. This is not. He didn't say bear each other's burdens, did he? What did he say? Bear with each other. <laughs> He's saying you're the burden. <laughs> you know, and guess what I have to do? I have to put up with you, and you have to put up with me. That means put up with people's oddities, their you know, idiosyncrasies, their quirks, their faults. I'll tell you, the more you get to know somebody, the more you'll see their quirks. So that's why, you know, in a class like this where you can actually get to know people, sometimes when you really get to know somebody, you don't like them as much as you did when you (laughs) first met them. And what Paul is saying, you know, in a church setting, because he's talking to a church, put up with each other's quirks. There's only one person that you'll ever get to know better and better who will never disappoint you, and that's Jesus. Every person, I don't care if it's a pastor, if it's Billy Graham, the more you get to know about Gr- Billy Graham, I want you to know something. It's not the more you are respecting. I just want you to know that. And guess what? The more you get to know about me, the more faults you'll find, and you will say, man, I didn't know street was that way. No wonder his wife wrote him that Valentine's <laughs> <laughs> letter like that. So <laughs> we need to put up with each other. Does that make sense? Okay. So I'm going to call this forbearance. Okay. That's what we need to do. We need to forbear each other, forbearance. Okay. Now look at the next thing we need to do in verse 13. And forgiving one another, not only forbearance, but forgiveness, forgiving one another. In other words, rather than feeling slighted or feeling hurt because someone may have said something to you that, you know, that offended you and you're going to hold a grudge or you're going to get even, no, guess what you should do? Forgive them. I remember when I was a pastor of a church. This is the truth. I was walking down a hallway and I didn't say hello to somebody. This man, I mean, he was a grown man, maybe 40 years old. I didn't even see him in the hallway. I can't tell you how your mind is so, you know, cluttered and so busy as you're pastoring a church, and I was, you know, had something on my mind, and I was heading toward a direction. I must have passed this guy in the hallway and didn't say hello. Three years later, I discover he's been holding a grudge. He actually makes sort of a confession. And he said, You know, I really don't like the way you pastor a church. And I said, Well? I I knew I wasn't a good pastor anyway, so that didn't bother me. And I said, well, I'm sorry, did I offend you or something? He said, yeah, three years ago, you were (laughs) walking. Well, just forgive me for that, you know. (coughs) And, uh, And I think that may have caused this guy and his wife to leave the church. This was a young couple, and they were involved in some ministries. But we must forgive each other, not hold a grudge, okay? And then he tells us how to do that. He says, if anyone has a complaint against another, see, notice that, see, if anyone has a complaint against another, so it says, forgive one another if anyone has a complaint (laughs) against another, okay, and he tells us how to do it. Even as Christ forgave you, so you also do. Now, how did Christ forgive me? Well, he forgave me freely, didn't he? He forgave me fully, didn't he? He forgave me finally, didn't he? Didn't he just forget about it? That's how I'm to forgive others and not hold these grudges. So there's forbearance and there is forgiveness. So this is command number one. Okay? That's what it means to put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering. Hey, put up with each other, forbearance, forgive one another. You know, don't get your nose bent out of shape over all these nonsensical, non-essential things. Okay, now command number two, verse 14. But above all these things, even more important than these other things, put on love, which is charity or selfless giving. Selfless giving, sacrifice. If you have to choose between your rights and someone else's situation, be selfless. Be charitable toward others without expecting something in return. Well, I gave them this. I should expect this. Selfless giving. And he describes this love that we're to put on. Look at this. At the end of verse 14. Which is the bond of perfection. So love is a bonding agent. Now when I say love is a bonding agent, what am I talking about? Well, you take a group of twigs and you bind them together. And this cord binds them together, and these twigs, which were separate, are suddenly now what? They're one. They're bound together. Love is a binding agent, see? And uh, the word, and it says it binds us in perfection, see? Which is bound, which is the bond of perfection at the end of verse 14. That word perfection means completeness, okay? So love is the bond of completeness. That means something. That means an individual can't be complete. Listen, an individual can't be complete. In order to be complete, guess what you have to be? Bound to someone else. And guess what binds you to that other person? Love, charity, giving, see? And so individuals who want to be individual Christians and think that they can be mature and complete and do whatever they want to do, churchless Christians or whatever, There's no such thing. You'll never grow. You'll never mature. You'll never be complete. You'll never reach this state of perfection. There must be a binding together among church members. And that happens when you forgive and you forbear, right? And uh, that's why this Sunday school is so important. Because you can't be bound together in a church service. Did you ever notice that? I'm not bound to the people sitting in front of me. No binding, no love, no forbearance, no forgiving, none of that. I don't have to worry about not showing malice toward them. I don't even know them. All I can see is the back of their head, (laughs) right? That's why Sunday school is so important. This is where the Christian life matures. And you mature by putting on these one things and forgiving and forbearance and then loving one another, which is the bond of perfection. So that's the second commandment. Let's bind ourselves together into a unified body. Okay? Now look at the third commandment, which is found in verse 15. And the fourth commandment is verse 16. Notice the change of verbs. Instead of putting on, look what we're to do. Verse 15, let the peace of God rule. See that? And then look at verse 16, let the word of God dwell. Okay? So we're going to look at the third and fourth commandments. Look at the third commandment. In verse 15, here's what it says. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Plural. Notice he's talking to the church. Oftentimes we'll take this and think he's just talking to an individual. Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. Continually rule in your hearts. Now the word rule there is a word that means to decide. It's a verb and it means to decide. And it carries the idea of like an umpire deciding balls and strikes and deciding who's out. The umpire is the judge. He's the final arbitrator. <laughs> when he says you're out, guess what you are? You're out. Okay. So what it says here is that we're let, to let the peace of God be the final arbitrator in our hearts. Now when we're talking about peace, we're talking about like reconciliation. We're talking about unity. When there's peace between people, there is reconciliation between them. If we've been on the outs and I forgive you, we're reconciled. There's peace between us. There's unity between us. So what he's saying is that the peace of God must rule in our hearts. It must be the final arbitrator or the deciding factor in church matters. Peace must be the deciding factor in church matters. It's not about what I want. It's not about what you want. The important thing is the unity in that body, the unity, the reconciliation between our hearts. We must, must be in unison with each other. See, And that's what he's talking about. And then he goes on to say this in verse 15, to which also, now watch this, it's very interesting, to which also you all were called. Do you see that? You are called into one body. So peace is our calling. Do you have a calling? Yes. In this body, you have a calling. And you know what it is? To be in peace with each other. And we should always make decisions based on will it produce peace or will it cause division? Will it produce reconciliation or will it produce separation? Now, Jim Ray Smith just said about, like, at the time of our Sunday school, the church asked us if we would meet at 10.50. You know something? We could have said, no, we're not going to meet at 10.50. We'll meet at uh, 8. That's what we're going to do. And, you know, we probably could have prevailed. I have no doubt about that. Or we could have said, no, we don't want to meet at 10.50. we want to meet at 9.15, and we could have prevailed. But would that have been peace? deciding <laughs> no that would be us saying well here's what we want and here's the church says well this is what we think is best for the church so guess what we do we let peace be the arbitrator the final decider in what to do so i think that's really important i think that was the right decision for us now somewhere down the line we can revisit this just like jim bray said but for that decision when the church said this is what we think is best for the church we could have either said no or we could allow peace to be our calling and help us make the decision. So we chose that, not knowing this text necessarily when we did it, but I think in (laughs) hindsight we probably did the right thing. And then he says, and look at this, at the end, when peace is the decision maker, and we realize that's what we were called to in one body, not to be one group of people, then he says, look at this, and be thankful. So you know what? I don't know. I don't know what I wanted. I don't know whether I wanted this to meet at 8 or f- 9, 15 or ten, fifty. I really don't know. But you know what I am? I'm thankful. Because as a result of our decision, there's peace in the church. And I think that's very important. Okay, now look at this fourth commandment. Still with me? Okay, verse 16. Fourth commandment. Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, to to dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Now, the word dwell means to take up residence. Let the word of God take up residence within you, within the church. Within the church, the word of God should be a permanent fixture in our lives. Now, notice the phrase that he has there, word of Christ. What is the word of Christ? I know what this, when we say word of God what that means. But what does he mean when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you? He could be talking about the gospel of Christ. That should always dwell in our hearts and in our lives. He could be talking about the words of Christ, his ethical teaching how to live as believers, how to live as followers of Christ. And it could be one or the other, it could be both. Well, let's just assume that it's both. The gospel should dwell in us, and Christ's ethical teaching should dwell in us. How should it dwell in us? Notice the adverb, richly. The word of God should dwell, be a permanent residence in us, richly or fully. This is how peace is maintained. Peace is maintained because the word of God dwells in us. It's our permanent fixture. We're guided by the word of God. If you're guided by the word of God, there will be peace. If you're guided by the word of God, there will be forbearance. If you're guided by the word of God, there will be forgiveness. If you're guided by the word of God, you'll put on, take off malice and you'll put on meekness and so on and so forth. Now, so the word of God should dwell in us. That's a command. Let the word of God dwell in you. So you have a choice. Either it will or it won't. See? You have a choice either to let peace rule in your heart. Either you will or you won't. See? You have a choice to put on love. Either you will or you won't. So he's telling us what he wants us to do. Now we get the results. Let the word of Christ, verse 16, dwell in you richly. So watch this. The results. Teaching and admonishing one another. I'm going to call this the horizontal result. I haven't forgotten that other phrase, by the way, the word in in all wisdom. These are the horizontal results. When the word of God dwells in you richly, then look what the results are. Horizontally, teaching and admonishing who? One another. This is a lay ministry. It's not just preachers. It's not Sunday school teachers who are teaching and admonishing you. It says we are to teach and admonish what? One another. And if the Word of God is dwelling in our hearts, plural, we will be able to teach, meaning instruct, and we'll be able to admonish, which means to exhort or encourage one another. So someone says, Ah, that person offended me. I can put my hand on the shoulder. Ah, just forgive him. Let it go. Why can I say that? Because I know what the text says. See? And you can do that too. So that is the horizontal result. It says, In all wisdom. See? In other words, don't use the word of God as a sledgehammer <laughs> to beat people over the head. It's like you're wrong, you know how you've seen people that do that. They can quote a scripture, make you feel really little. Uh, we're to let it dwell in us in all wisdom. So we're supposed to use this word in a wise fashion. Allow it to be our guide, our wise guide. I guess is what we said. Uh, this is why I believe it's so important to. Teach verse by verse through the scriptures in the context of a whole book so that the word of God can dwell in us richly. Not just say, well, here's my text. I'm taking one verse. You have no idea what that one verse means in light of the rest of the book. That wouldn't be richly, would it? No. You'd be getting cheated. That's why it's really important. That's why I'm really glad that the pastor is going through Romans verse by verse right now. It's very much needed. And so. Here, because this word of God is dwelling in us, and the pastor is teaching, and Sunday school teachers are teaching, it dwells in our hearts, and we can now minister one to another, lay ministry, teaching and admonishing. Okay? Now look at the means, look how the word of God is manifest, where it's located. Look, number one, verse 16, teaching and admonishing one another in Psalms, you see that? That's why I like to study the psalms in the summer. Psalms are the Old Testament songs that Israel sang, and we can admonish one another by reading and quoting the psalms, or as some churches still do, like the Scotch Presbyterians, churches sing the psalms, and when the people are singing the psalms, they are exhorting and teaching other one another in the congregation. And then not only does the word dwell in the Psalms, look at this next word in verse 16. And in hymns, these are hymns that exalt Jesus as Lord. We saw one of those hymns, if you'll remember, back in verse 15 of chapter 1 through 20, where it said that uh, he is the image of the invisible God. And I told you that this is a hymn that Paul puts right in the middle of the book of Colossians. So you have Psalms, which are the Old Testament Songs that can be read or sung. The word of God dwells in those, and we can admonish. We can admonish each other in hymns. And we just had a hymn. Which was the hymn that we just sang? It was, all hail the power of Jesus' name. And guess what? When we were singing that, we were admonishing each other to hail Jesus' name. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate, fall, lift look, lift forth his royal See, that's an admonition. That's what we should be doing. Lift forth his royal di- diadem. And crown him Lord of all. See? So here's a good example of how a hymn can be used for exaltation. And then there's a final category, and this is called in verse 16, spiritual songs, which we believe are spontaneous songs that the Holy Spirit gives when people just are in a spirit of worship and they start having these So-called, I don't like, inspired is a hard word, but you know what I'm getting at, spontaneous songs that just come from the heart. The Greek word there for spiritual songs is odice, from which we get our word ode. So an ode, this would be a spiritual ode that someone came up with. Remember the ode of Billy Joe? Uh Tallahatchie Bridge or something like that? What does that have to do with the Bible? I'm not sure. But... uh, Maybe more more of a folk song, you know a song that's sort of as a spontaneous song that comes to a person's mind, so it wasn't a Christ song, a hymn, it's not a psalm, but these are spontaneous spiritual songs uh, and I'm not talking about those mindless choruses by the way, that you sing sixty nine times and, <laughs> and if it's really good, you might go to seventy two times in a row okay they're not list those kinds are not listed in the scriptures, okay. Okay, so th- anyway, admonishing one another, and you can do it through psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. And then that's the horizontal result. Now look at the vertical results, because these psalms and songs can be done two ways. They can have a horizontal ministry and a vertical ministry to the Lord. Look what it says at the end of verse 16. Singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. So some songs are praise songs that actually are songs to the Lord. And maybe it means sing as unto the Lord when you sing. In that case, it would mean sing with a full heart, a heart of praise and joy and thanksgiving. So here we see the results of the word of God dwelling richly in you. Now in verse 17, Paul summarizes his teaching in this chapter and he says in whatever you do in word or in deed, meaning in behavior whatever you say or whatever you do that's maybe an easier way to think about it whatever you say or whatever you do do some things in the name of the Lord Jesus no it's all things now I think this I do think the context is he's speaking to the church And he's talking about when the church comes together right now. Now, there's a general principle here. And, of course, we should be good people all the time. But I think he's talking about when the church comes together, whatever you say or you do, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, Whether you're exhorting, whether you're giving, you should do it in his name. To come and do something in somebody's name means that you're their representative. If I would do something in the name of the President of the United States, I'd be that President's representative. So whatever we do, we need to be do it as if we were representatives of Christ. If you can't do it in his name, and you can't say it in his name, then you shouldn't do it. That's the bottom line on that. Uh, you know, you can't gossip in the name of Jesus. You can't be his representative in Say, in Jesus' name, let me tell you this. You can't, you know, covet in Jesus' name, right? You can't do a lot of things in Jesus' name. You can't wish evil on a person in Jesus' name, see? And when you do that in a church, you can't do it in Jesus' name, see? Or to put it another way, could you ask Jesus to participate with the activity that you're doing? Hey, Jesus, let's covet something over here. Let's, hey, Jesus, come over here. Jesus, get, you know, tell Dolly that little bit of gossip, I just, can you imagine Jesus doing something like that? Hey, Jesus, you know, which evil on that person? If you can't, if Jesus, if you wouldn't invite Jesus to do what you're doing, then you just shouldn't do it, that's, because what we are is we're representatives of Christ, and as representatives of Christ, here's what we're to do, we are to. Have tender mercy. Does that sound like Jesus? Yeah. Be kind. Does that sound like Jesus? Humble, meek, long-suffering. Bear with one another. Can you imagine how Jesus had to put up with Peter? <laughs> yeah. Forgiving one another. Remember how many times he had to forgive Peter? <laughs> See? And, and above all, putting on love, which is the bond of perfection. Say, Let the word dwell in you let peace of God rule in your hearts these are all things that Jesus did and if we're going to be his representatives then this is what we should do and when we do these we can do it in the name of Jesus as his representatives and this leads us to the last phrase in verse 17 and when you do that it says giving thanks to God the Father through him so when we do that we have this relationship with God who we see as a father that we come to him through his son Jesus Christ And this is how Christ and God and Paul wants us to live as a church. Now, next week, we're going to come to a very controversial passage. This is called the Household Codes. And the first one is, wives, submit to your own husbands. We should have saved this one for Valentine's Day. (laughs) And we're going to find out what that text means, and that's what we'll do next week. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for uh, (coughs) this passage of Scripture. Each day that we get up, help us to think, what am I putting on today? When we put on our socks and we put on our shirt and we put on our dress, help us to think, what else should we be putting on today? And what should we be putting off? Help us, Lord, to remember these commands. Above all else, help us to put on charity. Help us to be charitable people. Help us to make decisions based on does it produce peace or does it produce separation? And may your word guide us in these decisions. In Christ's name, amen.